Well, hello, Salt City Church. My name is Drake. I'm the community pastor here at Salt City Church. But honestly, I hope that you had a happy Thanksgiving. And I'm glad that we can all come together on the fact that we can finally listen to Christmas music together, right? The division is no longer between us. And so as we come back together, I know the holidays can be fun, exciting, exhausting, all of those things. Uh, we're going to continue on in our series through 1 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 7. And let me just lay out the topics that we're talking today, okay? We're talking about sex, we're talking about singleness, and we're talking about divorce. Pretty casual topics, right? Uh, but here's what I love about the Bible. The Bible talks incredibly clearly and openly about these topics, I think a lot of these topics are things that can cause a lot of shame in people's lives and in marriages that makes it incredibly difficult to talk about. But when we come to the Bible, we see that the Bible speaks so openly about these things. And what we learned last week is that we are no longer serving our own desires. Our own desires are no longer the master of our lives, but we serve a new master. We serve Jesus with our lives, and that's because he paid for us. We were bought with a price, and now we get to surrender our lives to him. And what that looks like is that we look up to him to be the master, and we follow him in every aspect of our life. And so the, the main idea that we're going to be talking about today is that the gospel gives countercultural wisdom for godly Living, And we're going to jump right into point one. Marriage is for sex. We're not wasting any time. Okay, it's going to get real, real quick. Verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her Husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, so the way that this verse or this section starts off is another set of quotations. And so what we learned last week is that there must have been some letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul with a bunch of different statements or questions that they had. And one of the statements that they had written down in that letter was, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So what we see is that this is almost the polar opposite of the quotation that we saw last week. Last week it said, all things are lawful. Because of my freedom in Christ, I am free to do whatever I want. I'm free to chase whatever desires I want. But this one is someone on the opposite end of the spectrum. What they're saying here is that sex in every context is dirty and gross and harmful and should not be pursued ever. And so people who were married in this church were seeking after celibacy with their husband or wife because they thought that sex was this completely flawed thing. And so what ended up happening is that people had this negative perspective of sex because of what they were seeing in the city of Corinth, and that carried over into the one context that sex was designed for. 
And I think in the Christian community today, that can be a similar experience. Because some of you, growing up, your entire life, you heard sex is bad, sex is gross, run as far away as you can because it is a dirty act. It only makes you a terrible person. And then you get married, and like sex is a gift. And it's disorienting. Immediately, the thing that caused the most shame for you in your life is now this gift that you're called to enjoy, and it can throw you off. But what Paul is wanting to do here is he's trying to correct how we think about sex. So he says, in response to that quote, because of the temptation towards sexual immorality, because of all the temptation that this world brings, it is perfectly appropriate for someone to get married and enjoy the gift of sex in that context. Perfectly appropriate. And then he continues by saying the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and the wife as well. I want to point out that this would have been incredibly staggering for Paul to say. Because in that highly traditional culture, the husband would have been, would have been seen as the one who carried all of the rights, all of the power, all of the authority, and the wife had no rights. She was only meant to serve the, the rights of her husband. And so for Paul to start off by saying to the husbands, you should pursue the rights of your wife, they would have been completely surprised by that. And then what you'll see as this text continues on is that Paul is going to talk to the husband first and then to the wife. And then for the next topic, he's going to talk to the wife first and then the husband, showing that there's this mutuality in a marriage that needs to be pursued after. So what are these conjugal rights? Uh, other kind of versions of the Bible use the words marital rights. And what it's talking about is that the husband and wife have a responsibility to show affection and to pursue the sexual desires of their spouse. By no means is that talking to perverse or sinful sexual desires, but he's talking about the good and right sexual desires that we have. The spouse is meant to pursue that of their spouse. And I want to point out that this passage has probably been used in a lot of wrong ways. This passage was never meant to be used as leverage. This passage was never meant to say, see, Look what I should get. I deserve this. this. This passage was to cause us to say, not I deserve, but what does my spouse deserve? And it, in this, it emulates the self-giving life of Christ that we're called to live out in a marriage context where I'm not pursuing my own good, but that of my spouse. He's, calling, he's saying that that works its way into the realm of sex and marriage as well. And I think it's safe to say, when we talk about this topic, that husbands and wives have a different, uh, maybe, understanding of sexual desires that they enjoy, okay? Different ways that they might look at sex. I think it's safe to say that's usually the case. But Paul's trying to point out that those differences aren't to pull us away from one another, but he's saying you should lean in and be a student of your spouse constantly learning how to meet their sexual needs. And he says the reason for this, because he uses the word for in that text, so he's going to give the reason for this, 
Next, he says that the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. I would say this statement is pretty counter to what our culture would say. That you no longer, when you get married, have sole authority over your body, but your spouse does as well. And what he's trying to get the Corinthians to understand is the depth of what it means to become one flesh with someone. I think there's a lot of areas that you can maybe think, oh, one flesh, that's a a nice thing to say at a wedding. But then when you get married, there's a lot of ways that you see yourself as separate people. And he's saying, no, in the realm of sex, you are one person. You are pursuing the good of the other person. And when you do that, that actually leads to your greatest good as well. And then he says the line, do not deprive one another. And just to say that clearly, he's saying, do not deprive one another of sex within marriage. And I want to point out again that this is talking to two healthy individuals within the marriage context. He's like, don't hold yourself back from your spouse. Except for this one circumstance. Okay, Paul gives one reason why a married couple should take a pause from having sex with one another. I'm sure married couples in this room could think of a lot of different reasons for why that might be the case. But what is Paul's reason? Let's look back at the text where he says, except perhaps. So he's already saying maybe. Okay, here's one reason, maybe. By agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The situation he's laying out is like someone saying, babe, not tonight. I think we need to devote ourselves to prayer, okay? And then the spouse saying, I completely agree with that decision. Like that conversation has never happened in the history of conversations, all right? And even with that scenario, Paul is saying maybe that's a good reason, but make it a short break. And I think as he does this, as he explains this, what he's doing is he's talking about the necessity of sex to bring about a healthy marriage. He says, if you need to take a break for prayer, maybe do that, but then quickly come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you for your lack of self-control. But then you might be thinking, wait, Paul, didn't you say that we have the fruit of the Spirit, one of those being self-control? Like, don't we walk in self-control now? But here you're saying that we lack it. I think what Paul is doing here is he understands the ideal of our pursuit of self-control, but at the same time, understanding the brokenness of our hearts. Understanding that we all struggle with self-control. Understanding that sex within marriage provides one of the greatest defenses against your own lack of self-control. With all the temptation that is out there in the world, Paul knows that Satan, before you get married, is going to tempt you to sleep with anyone who's not your spouse. And when you get married, Satan's going to tempt you to sleep with anyone who is not your spouse. And so in this, he's saying that spouses have this opportunity to help one another in that lack of self-control by pursuing sex together. Tim Keller talks to this 
by calling it a covenant renewal ceremony. He says this, quote, he says, In the same way, marriage is a covenant, one that creates a place of security for vulnerability. But though covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for covenant. The covenant will grow stale unless we continually revisit and reenact it. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony for marriage, the physical reenactment of the inseparable oneness in all other areas, economic, legal, personal, psychological, created by the marriage covenant. Sex renews and revitalizes the marriage covenant. So he's saying that when you got married and you said your vows and you consummated that marriage becoming one flesh, you became one. And that regularly having sex as a married couple is continuously saying to one another, we are one. It is the act of a spouse that says, I am yours. I'm holding nothing back from you. I am bound to you and you alone. I'm giving myself completely to you. There's something so profound being communicated through sex. And in a life where there are so many difficulties, so many trials, so many disagreements, the covenant renewal ceremony of sex brings the marriage back to the profound reality that they are one flesh. And so as we talk about this, I want to recognize that Paul is calling this church to that because he knows that there's unhealthy marriages when it comes to sex in this church. And I want to say to anyone who you feel like that's where you're at now, the first thing I want to say is that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And where it is okay to struggle, it is not okay to believe the lie of Satan that that will always be a reason for shame in your marriage and there's no reason that you should fight anymore. The second thing I want to say is as we look at this, being such a significantly talked about part of marriage, when there's unhealthy seasons in your marriage, sometimes that's a spotlight pointing to other difficulties that have not been addressed. And so are there conversations that need to be discussed or brought back for you guys to work through in that? But as we look at this text, the application for married couples is pretty, pretty simple. Okay, have sex. That's the application that Paul wants to say from this text. But I want to list three things that are okay, that I think we're tempted to believe are not okay. The first, it's okay to have bad sex. What do I mean by that? I think that we are tempted to believe the lie that sex always needs to be this highly romanticized thing that we might see from Hollywood. That it always needs to be based on feelings and sparks and being in the mood. But what we see here is that it is pursuing the health and the oneness of your marriage. That there are going to be times where it seems more like a necessity than a spark, and that is okay. Because it's not about a feeling, it's about you coming back to the reality that you are committed to your spouse, that you are one with them. Second thing that's okay, it is okay to schedule sex. All right? I think another thing that we can believe is that it needs to be spontaneous and then it never ends up happening. This is an important thing to schedule, okay? You schedule a lot of things in your week that are far less important, okay? This is an important thing to put on the calendar. 
And so have that conversation. Realize it is okay to talk with your spouse about these things. Lastly, I want to say it is okay to talk about sex. One of the most beautiful elements of a marriage, Satan has flipped to be one of the most, the, the biggest reasons for shame that creates bitterness and isolation and makes it feel like you cannot talk to other people about it. And in that, I just want to say, if that's where you're at, talk to people who are close to you. Find the, the support or help that you might need in the cities around you to help you in this conversation. Again, it is okay to struggle in this area, but we are not to buy the lie that Satan says that it is not something we can talk about, not something that we can be open about, because God created sex as one of the most precious gifts to be enjoyed in a marriage, and so Satan is going to do everything he can to keep you as a married couple from doing that. So here is an invitation for both spouses to help one another when it comes to the realm of self-control through pursuing sex together. Okay, so the singles in the room, I'm sure you're like, how does that apply? Point two is going to apply to you, okay? We're, we're going to move on to the second point, which talks about the gift of singleness. So verse six, let's look at that real quick. That says, now is a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul starts off by saying, I wish that everyone was like me. I just talked about marriage. I wish all had the same gift as me. I wish that all were single. And this would have been a dramatically different tone than Corinth at the time, than believers at the time. Because what would have been believed is that in order to have purpose, in order to have security, you need to have a family. You needed to have heirs to pass your name down to so you could have a legacy. You needed to have protection of kids when they grow up to help you when you're older. If you wanted to have value, you needed to have a family. And Paul is saying, I wish everyone was like me, single. And I think that different perspective is something that we feel in our culture today as well. A lot of times singleness can feel more like a waiting room to something better than a gift. Right? And what Paul says here, as a lot of you probably around the holidays were asked the question, like, have you met someone yet? All those amazing questions that we love to receive. Paul says, I wish you were like me. He didn't ask that question. He goes so far to call it a gift from God that he has. Like a gift that he treasures that he has from God. And I know probably a lot of singles in the room, you're, you're telling yourself that that's not the perspective I have. I don't see this as a gift, right? If anything, maybe a white elephant gift that I want to wrap up and give to someone else later, right? How am I supposed to see it as a gift? Well, I think Paul has something very important to communicate about the gift of singleness in this passage. Okay, Paul is a unique individual. He chased 110% after everything he did. Before he was a believer, he rose the ranks of the Pharisees at that time. He was one of the greatest Pharisees of that generation. When he became a believer, he devoted every minute of his day towards church planting, towards going to the next city. Relationships weren't even on his mind. 
had to be an intense individual, right? But what Paul is saying is that this is a gift that I have. I wish that all were like me. So he obviously has a preference to how he's wired. But each person has their own gift. One of one kind and one of another. So if you're in here and you're single and you're saying, I have a desire to be married. It is really hard for me to see singleness as a gift. Here's what Paul's saying. Maybe that's because you don't have that gift. I know very few people that have the gift of singleness where a relationship isn't even something on their mind and where there's still this pursuit of contentment in the season of singleness. Paul is trying to communicate something in this passage that says it is okay to desire to be married because maybe singleness isn't your gift. And he continues to talk to the unmarried by saying these words in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says something that's very surprising in this passage. Something that maybe is opposite to what you might have heard as you approached marriage or as you were single. He says, if you cannot exercise self-control, get married. It is better to get married than to burn with passion. And I think a lot of people, myself included, maybe heard or felt this idea that I need to reach a level of maturity work and self-control before I get married. I need to get to a point where I can tame these desires to such a degree before I get married. Paul says the opposite here. He's saying, are you dating someone and you guys have talked about getting married and you see that in your future? Is sexual temptation a struggle of yours? Then get married. Why wait? Have a short engagement. He's saying you should pursue that. These desires are meant to be something that keeps you from getting married, but you should see them as desires that God has placed in you to direct you towards marriage. He then speaks to the next group, or I think this passage speaks to another group in here who is um, people that desire to be married but aren't dating anyone right now. I think it's important to, to look at the words that are used when he says they should marry, those words are spoken in an active tense, not a passive tense. So what he's saying, he's saying don't sit back and wait for some random person to just enter your life. Don't grow in bitterness in the fact that other people are dating and isolate yourself if that is something that you desire. Just like Okay, for people who are looking towards graduation, if you, if you have a desire for a job, that's going to be displayed in how you act. Like you're not just going to sit at home and wait for a random company to call you and say, hey, we have the perfect job for you. No, you're going to fill out, make, make your resume. You're going to fill out applications. You're going to call different companies. You're going to do things that showcase you have a desire for a job. I think this, this passage would lead us to say there are healthy ways for a single person who desires to be married to be in the active end of pursuing a relationship. 
that's not a discontentment that we might believe it to be. Things such as attending connection groups where you might meet people, attending the young professional hangouts called Hoya here at this church. It might be finding respectable dating apps that you can meet someone. It might be just letting people know that you have a desire to be married and being willing to go on dates with people. So I want to speak a little bit to first the men and then the women in the room. To the single guys, I realized the craziest thing this past week as I was preparing for this. So Paige, my wife and I, we're, we're nearing on six years of marriage this January. Thank you for the five of you. Uh, so but I'm, I'm nearing six years, and as I'm reflecting on all the conversations I had, she has never once asked me how many championships I won on the Xbox growing up. Like, I have this highly accomplished past that she has not asked anything about. Here's what I'm trying to say. Pursue things in your life that would be seen as attractive to a potential relationship. So what that might be is pursuing after a job. Like, when was the last time you took a dirty dish and made it clean, right? Or have the courage to ask a girl out, okay? I know that there's this weird thing in the Christian culture that if someone goes on the fir- like a first date, people are waiting for a save the date to come in the mail. Here's what I want to say. You're not bringing a ring to the first date. And the only way you can get to know someone is if you're having conversation. The only way that you're going to see the truly beautiful qualities of someone is across a table, not from afar. And so be willing to ask a girl out on a date, throw out the long checklist that you might have, and get to know them. Okay, to the women, I want to speak about the, I, the concept of beauty for a moment. Because there's obviously one ditch that is flawed and broken in our culture, and that is that women have been objectified to just be boiled down to how they look. Incredibly flawed, incredibly shrinking of the image of God and the beauty in you. But I think there's another ditch that some women can fall into where they feel like they cannot care about beauty at all. And if they do, it is shallow and wrong. And what I want to say to you is that it is okay to have a desire to be beautiful. It is okay to present yourself in such a way that shows, man, I want to be in a relationship where the most beautiful qualities of you are your, is your character, your giftings, and your love for Jesus. Your physical beauty is part of you as well. And with that said, I want to ask you, where are you finding your definition of beauty? Is it from culture? Is it from influencers? Or is it women that you look up to in the faith? And who is someone in your life that you could reach out to and have a conversation to learn from them? So what we see is that there are healthy ways for both men and women to be on the active end to show that I want to be in a relationship. Marriage is something that I desire. But Paul's going to speak to one more group. And the last group is in the realm of divorce. And our last point is divorce is usually not an option. So let's look at verse 10 that says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. 
the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul's speaking into a culture where divorce was incredibly common. There was a Jewish rabbi by the name of Hillel in this time that said, a good reason to divorce your wife is if she burnt the food that she made for dinner. Okay, so he's saying anything goes. You can get creative, find reasons to divorce your spouse. And what this ended up doing was leaving women to fight for themselves economically and socially, which was incredibly difficult in this time. And Paul is saying that is not how things are going to be in this community. So he starts off by speaking to divorce between two married believers. And he says, not I, but the Lord. And so what he's saying is, this is something that has been spoken about previously in the written word of God. It's something that Jesus said in Matthew 5, where he said that you shall not divorce except for the reason of sexual immorality. So Jesus gives a short list for reasons that divorce would seem, be seen as permissible. So I think when we think about the, the idea of divorce from the Bible, it's important for us to see that divorce was not the good and right way that God designed the world to be. But because of the brokenness of the human heart, because of the hardness of the human heart, God said sexual immorality is a permissible reason for someone to get divorced. So it's a rather short list, but we're going to see another one added to that list from this passage. So Paul continues that tone by saying divorce should not happen amongst believers. And if there's separation, because a woman in that day didn't have the rights to divorce her husband, if there's separation, they should be brought back together in reconciliation. But then Paul starts speaking to a new group of people, a group that maybe there's people in your life that fall into this camp that you know But in this generation, it would have been a new group altogether. It would have been incredibly rare for previous generations to see this type of couple, and that is a believer being married to an unbeliever. Because if you think about it, Corinth was this Roman and Greek city that was known throughout all the ancient world, economically thriving. The temple of Aphrodite, where people would come all over to sleep with temple prostitutes to worship Aphrodite, was known throughout the ancient world. But then one day, this message called the gospel came into this city and flipped it upside down. And as it came into the city, there were already established marriages where one spouse came to know Jesus and the other one refused to follow him. 
So where before this, before Jesus rose from the grave, it was the Jewish people of God. Now it's open up to the world and there are people that are coming to know Jesus when their spouse wants nothing to do with him. So I think it's important to talk about, he's not speaking to the concept of evangelating, okay? It is always a bad idea to try to evangelize while you're dating someone that's not your spouse. You cannot be the Holy Spirit to save their soul. He's speaking to already established marriages that now are walking through this complexity of we're one flesh, but you have different beliefs than me. So this is why Paul says, I say, not the Lord. He's not saying that this wasn't the inspired word of God. He's saying this just hasn't been talked about in the Bible yet because this wasn't a scenario that ever happened. So he's saying, now I'm adding this in because this is a new situation that we're coming across. And he's going to talk to two different groups of people. The first one is one spouse came to know Jesus, but the other still wants to be in the relationship. And to this group, they were probably like, hey, I'm a different person now. Like you, you no longer allow me to freely express the desires I want. Therefore, I should be able to bail. And Paul says in this passage quite clearly that if the other person consents to stay in that marriage, you shall not divorce that person. You should remain in that marriage even if they're not a believer. Continue to hold fast to the vows that you already have said. And he gives this explanation for what that presence does in that marriage in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Okay, so what is he talking about when he says made holy? Well, we know that there's no way that the spouse can make them holy in a spiritual sense. Like, again, we make a terrible Holy Spirit as much as we want to be. And so there's no way for you to save your spouse in that context. So what is he saying? He's saying that the unbelieving spouse is going to be surrounded by a culture that's chasing after the pursuits of Corinth. And your presence in that marriage is getting them to rub shoulders with someone that's pursuing after another kingdom. Getting them to pursue after a greater king and King Jesus. And it's affecting the way that you sacrifice and love your spouse. And through doing that, there is the potential that they would themselves come and surrender their life to King Jesus as well. Completely by his grace. And he extends that to the kids as well. Like if the kids were to just be with the unbelieving parent, they're only going to be exposed to that. But in staying present and rubbing shoulders with the husband or wife and the kids, they get a glimpse into someone who's chasing another kingdom. And faithfully displaying the life of Christ, it has the potential to have an impact to where they would themselves come to the foot of the cross as well. So the Bible would never advocate for evangelizing while dating, but here's a call to faithfully evangelize to the person that you are one flesh with in marriage. To keep showing up, to keep being present, to keep sacrificing even if they aren't themselves. And he speaks to another group that in this scenario, there was a spouse who was completely neglected by their husband or wife. 
And the spouse that was a believer was trying to hold on with everything they had because they felt the weight of saving their spouse. And they're like, if they leave, how will they come to know Jesus? But the spouse completely deserted them in every way. And to them, he says, let them go. God has called you to peace. And so here we see in the Bible that reasons for divorce are when there's sexual immorality or where there's desertion of one spouse to another. When that spouse is an unbeliever. I think where our culture would say that the Bible does not understand how constricting that sounds, I think the Bible would say to our culture, you don't understand the depth of what it means to be one flesh with someone. And where we know that being one with someone is an incredibly intimate relationship and the the brokenness that's experienced in some marriages can be really hard to love someone. But we see in the Bible this constant posture to hold on to that marriage, to keep fighting because you are one. And as we see the Bible's perspective, it should create more and more awe in the reality that we have been made one with Christ himself. That where we are broken, where we rejected him in everywhere, where we ran from him at all costs, where we committed adultery in so many different ways, he said, I want to vow to them that I will never depart from or abandon them. And so if throughout this sermon, if there's any of you who have felt any sense of shame, I want to remind you that chapter one started off by saying you are sanctified. You are made holy and blameless because of what Jesus has done. And some of these categories, some of these topics might speak to some of the darkest parts of your story. Some of the things that are incredibly difficult for you to talk about. But what I want to say is a reminder of this upcoming season that we're about to celebrate. And to point you to John 1 that says that light broke in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. And so what that means is that the darkest parts of your story only serve as evidence to how bright the light of Christ is in your life. That he broke into the darkness to bring his light to you and he died in your place so that you could be invited into that light. And so where he invites you to come as you are, he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. He wants you to surrender under who he is as the King Jesus. And so we are invited in every area of our life, to surrender and submit to him who is a good master who loves us dearly. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful for this season that reminds us of you coming for broken people. Jesus, we delight in your word that shows that when we we were broken, when we were sinful, that's when you decided to come after us. Jesus, that we come to a good king that decided to say, not shame on you, but shame on me. I'm going to take that shame upon myself so that you can experience my love. And you've invited us into a better way of life. And that impacts the most intimate parts of our story. And I pray that we would not feel shame from this, but an invitation. Help us to come to you, King Jesus and to surrender who we are to you in every form of our life, knowing that Satan is constantly trying to steal, kill, and destroy our joy, but you came to bring life and to give it abundantly. So Jesus, as we approach this season where you 
came to this broken world for your broken bride, would we realize that that is speaking to our story, speaking to our brokenness? And would we accept that invitation to come to you and to lift up your name because you are worthy of praise and it's in your name that we pray, amen.